Hello, welcome. This is Rob Shank, host of Shank Talks Bunhofer, a podcast all about the life, times, interest, and thought of this remarkable church leader who did the bulk of his work in the 1930s and 40s in Germany during the terror that was the Third Reich, the Hitler dictatorship, the uh, unspeakable horrors of the Holocaust. And we look at Bonhoeffer and his ideas on moral theology, on Christian ethics, uh, on the church, and how they applied in his own times, but even more importantly, how they may assist us in facing the challenges of our own day. And sometimes we're dealing with a conversation on this podcast that is directly related to those things, sometimes not. And in this case, today, I want you to listen in to a conversation I had with a remarkable leader in our own day, the pastor of a vibrant church community here in the nation's capital, Donna Claycomb Sokol, uh, who is the pastor of Mount Vernon Place United Methodist Church in downtown Washington, D.C., where she led this congregation through a multi-million dollar property, re property redevelopment and helped the congregation transform from 50 beleaguered people uh, with an average age of 82 to a growing, diverse, and I will add, young congregation that includes just an abundance of young professionals, of folks who come in off the street, uh, and I mean literally live on the street. It's a mix of up-and-outers, down-and-outers, everything in between. Uh, and Donna is just a remarkable pastor, and I'm going to say a pastor in the Bunhofer mold. She earned her Master of Divinity from Duke Divinity School, a Doctor of Ministry from Wesley Theological Seminary, and an Executive Certificate in, of all things, religious fundraising from the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. She is a former White House intern and also served on a congressional uh, staff and a Senate staff uh, and uh, later as the Director of Admissions at Duke Divinity School. So Donna is just a remarkable person. She's the author of A New Day in the City, uh, Urban Church Revival. I highly commend it to you, especially if you're a pastor or lay church leader. Uh, it would make a wonderful reading tool with your leadership group. A New Day in the City, uh, Urban Church Revival. And remember that Bonhoeffer was a pastor uh, in two urban settings in Spain and actually three uh, in in Germany, Spain, and in London. Uh, he loved the city, and uh, so does Donna. So I hope you'll get as much out of this conversation with Donna Claycomb Sokol, uh, dear friend, colleague, and uh, I'm a secret admirer of her pastoral leadership in a very challenging city like Washington, D.C. So here's my conversation with Donna Claycomb Sokol. Donna, it's lovely to have you as a friend, a colleague, 
when I drive past the church here in downtown Washington, D.C. I always thank God for it. I pray for you. I look at this imposing building that's so impressive. And then I look at the moniker above it, mm-hmm. Methodist Episcopal Church. I think it says South, South. doesn't it? It still says it South. It says South. So before we get there and all the implications to that uh, name, let's learn first about you because you have your own very interesting trajectory. It's a little familiar to me because I spent so many years ministering on Capitol Hill and we may have crossed paths in a hallway somewhere Mm -hmm. in one of those buildings up near the Capitol. Let's talk about your trajectory. How do you end up the pastor of Mount Vernon United Methodist Church? You follow a Jesus who is always doing a new thing and who longs to enter into our lives and to reveal our gifts to us and to ask questions about where those gifts can best be utilized. So I'm someone who had my life planned from the time I was about eight years old and wanted to always grow up and become a public servant. I wouldn't have used those words at the time. What I would have said is that I wanted to be a United States Senator from the state of Missouri. Yes. And so the plan was to come here right out of college. Thank you for reminding us that senators are public servants. They are. Yeah, every elected official should be a public servant, first and foremost. Mm. Servant, servant, humility. So came here right out of college to work on first as an intern in the Clinton White House and then went to work for a freshman Democrat from Ohio who was defeated in 1994 along with a whole lot of other Democrats um, when the contract with America came and I can still picture Speaker Gingrich on the lawn of the Capitol unveiling the contract with America. And the wake of what happened as a result of his vision for our country and the leadership that he was providing. So was unemployed, went back to work on the Hill for a senator from Iowa. During the time of unemployment, realized that my identity had been taken away from me, that I had allowed my identity to be a fancy congressional seal on a hard cardstock business card. Mm and that I had allowed that to define me, that I was Donna Claycomb, a scheduler for a congressman from Ohio. And when all that was taken away from me, that's when I started to go back to church again. And so in the midst of a job search that ended up taking almost four months, found this other place where I was becoming alive and where my gifts were being utilized and where someone was naming those gifts and giving me the courage to claim them. And so I continued to get very involved in a congregation on Capitol Hill, which we also have in common. And wait, wait a minute, now let me see. Capitol, Capitol Hill. Hill United Methodist. Right. Which was the building, folks who are listening to the podcast probably don't know this part of the story unless they've read the book, but that was where my first pastoral assignment was, not with Capitol Hill United Methodist, but with a church that that borrowed the facilities right. there. So, when you yeah. were starting a congregation. So our, right. Right. Our paths crossed Right. So in this early. space that was important to both of us at and the time. And what are we talking about for you? So 90, uh, 94 is when I lost my job. And so it would have been 95 to 97. Mm. Yes. Right. Okay. Yep. So 95 to 97. Yeah. So got really involved in the church again and continued to work on the Hill. But in April of 96, chaperoned a group of young United Methodists 
on a United Nations seminar in New York City. And it was during those three days in Manhattan that I experienced a very pivotal and uh, almost a strike uh, of lightning, bolt of lightning kind of call to ministry. So that was April of 96. Left here to go to seminary in August of 97, went to Duke, and so spent the next eight years in North Carolina as a seminary student, as an associate pastor, and then as director of admissions for the Divinity School at Duke, and then came here in 2005. How Bonhoefferian that your call came in the intersection between faith and politics. And politics. Very Writ much large, so. because we're talking UN, that's that's big politics, that's global politics. And the, the, the merging of those two streams of your life. Had you been raised a United Methodist? I can't I remember was. that. I was. I was raised mm -hmm. United Methodist, but then took a break from the church in high school and college. So decided that I really didn't need it in my life during those formational years. So it wasn't until I lost my job that I started to find my roots or claim those roots again. One more ding on the intersection between uh, our life paths yep. because I made my profession of Christian faith in the United Methodist Church. So common roots there in right. a way. Not right. a cradle United Methodist for me, but I was young. I was 16 years old sure. when I made that profession of faith. Right. So then you get the call to the church here yep, so in I was, Washington. I was and in, did you orchestrate that? Were you out to get a pulpit in the nation's capital? Definitely not. Again, <laughs> only the spirit could have orchestrated this. So I was in town. Uh, recruiting students for Duke Divinity School. So I was director of admissions at the time. I had recently come back from South Africa on a pilgrimage of pain and hope that was led by one of the national leaders of the church's movement to end apartheid. And so Peter Story was a professor of mine at Duke Divinity School, and then I went on a pilgrimage with him, looking at the deep, deep pain of the apartheid years, and then the tremendous hope that had been born out of the church's witness. Mm -hmm. So we spent two weeks in South Africa examining this pain and also being part of these places that were filled with penetrating hope. Mm -hmm. And it was there that I began to pray for God to take me out of my place of comfort and success, for God to give me a heart for hurting and broken people, and for God to make me more prophetic. So the dean at the Divinity School had sent me on that trip. It was something I negotiated when I was coming back as their director of admissions. And so he had sent me on that excursion, that journey, that pilgrimage, and came home and within a few weeks said, I'm so grateful that you sent me. I also wanna let you know that this will be my last year working in admissions. I don't know exactly where God is calling me yet, but I sense it's back to the local church. And at that point, I had been ordained in Western North Carolina. I've been really um, shaped and formed and recruited by congregations in Western North Carolina through Duke's field education program. And so immediately thought that I would be serving a church somewhere in Western North Carolina, wrote to that bishop and let him know that I was ready to go back to the local church and assumed that that's where I would be. And in 2000, uh, let's see, I've been here since 2005. So April of 2004, well, let's see, October, it would have been October of 2004. Um, I was here recruiting students for Duke Divinity School 
and uh, caught up with my district superintendent, um, who was the district superintendent at the time, but had been my uh, my pastor at Capitol Hill. So he was the person who had helped me hear God's call and accept God's call and ordained ministry. I and I hadn't seen David, and so I caught up with David over a long lunch at Cactus Cantina, <laughs> and it said to him, this is what God has been doing. I've been praying this prayer. God, please take me out of my place of comfort and success. Give me a heart for hurting and broken people and make me more prophetic. And I'm not sure where exactly I'm being led, but I know I'm ready to go back to the local church. And David said, would you ever come back to Washington? And I said, no, why would I come back mm. to Washington? At this time, I have years of relationships that have been built back in Western North Carolina. Uh, it sounds and, like a biblical saga. Right? Will and, you? No. No. But and, in the end? And David said, please don't answer the question. Just promise me that you'll pray about it. And so that was in April of 2000, or in October, excuse me, October 2004. And I went home and I started to write in my journal about what I would do if I was called to pastor this church. And this is a neighborhood where in the mid 90s, you would not have come to this neighborhood. Yes. You might have gotten off the metro and gone to a Chinese restaurant, an authentic Chinese restaurant in Chinatown, yeah. but you wouldn't have wandered around this neighborhood. No, I remember at it well. All. I remember it well. In fact, everyone steered me away from, from this, neighborhood. this little corridor. And so I'm sure I'd been by this church before in a taxi cab but it wasn't a place I knew. And I didn't even really know the name of the church when I was asked to pray about it. And what David said at that time is that I don't really have anyone who wants to go there. But he said, I promise you that they'll be lined up whenever you're ready to go. Because yeah. it was less than 50 people with an average age of 82. My. Our chair of the personnel committee was 97 years old. Our yeah. finance chair was 93. Our lay leader was 90. It's a lot of wisdom, but not a lot of future. But wisdom, praise God. They did have such a profound mm. amount of wisdom and an even deeper love of their church. Yeah. And the love of the church is what enabled them to let go of a portion of their property and do a property redevelopment when that opportunity presented itself. And because we got to redevelop our property, we had to move out of the grand building mm. and vacate our property for a year and a half. I see. And that's when God started to do a new thing. So that was a long, circuitous response to your question. It's a beautiful story, and it's not unlike the record we read in Scripture about how God leads His people, and they go in, and they go out, and they return. Right. And such was the case here. So you took the pastorate in what year? In 2005, July in 2005. 1 of 2005, so almost 14 years ago. And God ago. has done a new thing. I've been here for a Sunday morning worship. The average age is anything but 87. Right. Uh, you've you've got a lot of young people. You've got young families. Lots. You have students here. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a vivacious place. It is it's a vibrant so, place. It sure is in yes. every way, in every way. But then you get here and uh, we were talking before we sat down to record this and I said, you know, you come by here, it looks idyllic. I mean, it just looks fabulous. And we're sitting in your office now, which is just very tastefully decorated and lovely if you know put a photo of you in a church journal and it's like <laughs> this woman's got the perfect pastorate but 
a certain reality sets in about the history of this right. congregation and that moniker outside right. Methodist Episcopal Church South. Right. And that carries a lot of implications. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I'm sure, too, when I was being invited to pray about coming here, that that was part of the brief introduction that I was given of this congregation, the Mother Church of Methodist Episcopal Church South. So in 1844, there was a split in the Methodist Church over the issue of slavery. A man, Bishop Andrew, had acquired a slave through marriage, and the church said, you cannot be a bishop and hold slaves. And another part of the church said, of course you can. And so there was a split over that issue in 1844. In 1850, it was believed that there needed to be a representative church for the Methodist Episcopal Church South in the nation's capital. So 50 people came together in 1850 to form Pro Slavery Methodist faction. Episcopal Church South. And this is actually the third or fourth lo building location. Um, it was always downtown, but a massive fundraising appeal started not long after the congregation started. And Bishop Candler, who, for whom Candler School of Theology at Emory University is named. Famous. So Bishop Candler was the bishop who was responsible for making sure that the money was raised for the grand edifice that you drive by or walk or that thousands of people walk by on Which any is, given day. I must say, lovely. It it's looks more lovely, like the Supreme Court. Yes. Mm -hmm. It looks very much like the Supreme Court. They wanted a monumental building. So no expense was spared when that building was constructed. The cornerstone was laid in 1917, finished in 1919. It was a $280,000 building when it was built. Which back then was massive. a breathtaking right. amount of money. Like the marble, like the narthex is full of marble. Every window in the building is stained glass. People will come inside today just to see the stained glass windows. And all this with a certain intention To be it. a representative church that gathered in a monumental building for the Methodist Episcopal Church South, for Southerners who believed in the institution of slavery. And now, help, help me to understand, because we're talking about the building going up, you said in 1913. 1917 1917. to 1919. Okay, 1917, that's quite a few years after the Civil War. Right. The end of legal slavery. Right in the United States. So what were they really up to here? So that's hard to always discern if you go and spend time in our archives. And again, it was decades of fundraising to get this building. So I think if the money would have come in in the late 1800s, it might make a whole lot more sense for them to have engraved the words Methodist Episcopal Church South. But I also believe that the fundraising took so long that a lot of people had given to that monument for what that church stood for, that those words still needed to be engraved over both of their entrances into the grand building. Can we pause just for a second? Yeah. <coughs> Matt, I'm gonna cough. <coughs> Boy, an urge there. Do it, get your water. Yeah, thank you. We'll be right back on track here. 
Okay, let's resume. Okay. Sorry about that. No. Um, but in 1935, from 1935 to 1959, there was a man who was, 1960, there was a man who was sent here named John Rustin. And there's a Washington Post article that was written in September of 1950 after his last Sunday here. In fact, it, the quote is on my door over there. So the Washington Post article, and it quotes, Dr. Rustin told the congregation, the trouble with the church is that it's not liberal enough. This is 1950. And then he continued to spell out what he thought the church of the future would be like. And it continues to quote him saying that the church has to get past its deep-seated prejudices and move people into action if it's ever going to be the body of Christ. 1950, this predates the civil rights so era. So 18 years before Dr. King was assassinated. So there was a prophet or means at least he was getting prophetic courage. The Methodist Episcopal Church South went away in 1939. So he would have been appointed here when in 1935. Mm -hmm. So he would have been appointed here as a Southern pastor. I see. And then been here when it merged in 1939, stayed until 1950. And so we know, and many of my oldest adults, when I first became the pastor here 14 years ago, were people who came to this church in the 1940s. So they came here. As African-Americans. No, as white, okay. predominantly was, white people. I see. But they came here as young adults during the war. Mm -hmm. So they took these jobs that were emerging all throughout Washington during the war years. Mm -hmm. And they were shaped and formed by Dr. Rustin. And so we know that that was happening, that this is the voice that was here. If someone is preaching to standing room only crowds, because the Washington Post article also describes the crowds. I see. Standing room only crowds, but is someone telling the congregation in 1950 that you have to get past your deep-seated prejudices? What a hopeful telling Amazing. of that story. And then there are books, I used to have them here in my office, these old, brittle, huge scrapbooks that show Girl Scout troops that used to gather here at Mount Vernon Place that are multiracial. So multiracial, 50s and 60s. Mm. And then um, there was a multiracial playground. So we uncovered these pictures upstairs of a playground in our city that was intentionally multicultural. The church owned a camp out in Virginia and operated this camp for a long time out in Virginia. And the camp closed because the church started taking kids from our neighborhood and we were taking them to a camp, but the camp happened to be in a segregated community in Virginia. Yes. So we have these So those really, children were not welcome in Virginia. No, we were welcome. We were taking them to yes. our camp, but they weren't welcomed by the neighbors who were bordering that camp in Virginia. I just want to pause for a minute, Donna, and say, what a delightful surprise this part of the story is right? for me. Because I imagined it to be a rather bleak story of a white supremacist uh, inclined congregation here because right. of its heritage. But this is a different story than I expected. Right, but you also have to listen to other voices who might tell you the story. So we've been able to uncover part of this in our archives, looking at pictures, looking at the Washington Post article, 
and looking at some of these stories. But we also had a woman named Carol Travis here for many, she was here five years as our administrative assistant. And Carol is someone who was born and raised at nearby Asbury United Methodist Church. So where we sit, two blocks up K Street, is a historically African-American congregation. Asbury's materials, at one point said the representative church for African-American Methodism. Asbury was born out of Foundry United Methodist Church, so African-Americans who left Foundry to form their own church. Carol was our administrative assistant, but was, like I said, an active member at Asbury. And Carol will tell you lots of stories about how she knew she wasn't welcome at Mount Vernon Place. She also tells stories about an at aunt. this congregation. Right. She, she was Historically, not welcome. back in the day, um, Carol's a retired woman. Um, and then she tells a story about Sibley Hospital, about an aunt that was raised or lived right across from Sibley Hospital, which was a historic Methodist institution, and how her aunt needed desperate care but wasn't allowed into Sibley Hospital at the time. Because she was black. Right, right. And so I think, I think we can go to our archives, but we also have to carefully listen to the voices of our neighbors who might not have felt the tremendous sense of welcome or hospitality that our church might have thought it was offering or presenting. So remind me again of the prophetic pastor's name? John Rustin. So John Rustin. So can you find a record of how his prophetic message was received here? Was it welcomed or rejected? He built the church to over 4,000 members. So it was received. Oh my goodness. But as always, you have people who have their own personal... No, he was well received. In fact, when I first got here, he's the only pastor that people talked about. I see. And so he had been gone since 1950. It was 55 years later, but they were still talking about him. Still talking about him. What a legacy. As though he had just left. What a legacy. I used to joke and say that they think most of those older older members are now in the church triumphant. But mm. I used to joke and say that the way that they talked about Dr. Rustin was that Dr. Rustin was the one seated next to God the Father in heaven <laughs> and not Jesus because okay. they worshiped him. My. They worshiped him because he related to young adults so well. So again, they had mm. come as young adults. He um, had the capacity, I'm told, to learn your name once or hear it once and remember it forever. He started dances on Saturday night. So there were square dancing at one hour, ballroom dancing at another hour in the 40s in a church. Sounds like a church I would have wanted so he to, was pu- he pushed. to attend. And, but what is the meaning of all of this for you now? I okay. know this has presented you with a contemporary challenge. Right. And what or is it? Opportunity. Opportunity, okay. Challenge, I, I would say an opportunity to learn and to um, discern how do you respond to that. And so we were approaching the 100-year anniversary of laying the cornerstone. And our building is a complete gift to our congregation. So the building that you and I are sitting in right now, not a member didn't give a dollar for this building. We were able to buy space in this building because we sold property. And we were able to... We're in an adjoining structure, correct? Or are we in the original, we're not in the original stone temple? No, we're not in the stone temple. We're in the building next door, which is a commercial office space that the church bought back space from or in when we were doing the redevelopment. I see. 
And so we didn't pay for our building. And we know, including the restoration and renovation that happened to the historic building uh, that says Methodist Episcopal Church South. Where your sanctuary is located. Where the beautiful sanctuary is, right. And so as we were approaching the 100 year anniversary, our building is an amazing blessing. Our building is our best form of evangelism. It's our building and our location that bring people into this church far more than our members inviting people to church. And our, so how do you praise God for that building? How do yes. you honor the 100th anniversary of the laying of the cornerstone and give thanks for this incredible tool for ministry that we have? But you can't do that without also going back and naming what the words say above each entrance. And so in September of 2016, that's the first time I preached on Black Lives Matter. And at the end of that sermon, I offered the invitation, would anyone like to continue this journey with me? Would you like to form a reading group or have additional conversations? And one person said yes, and that's all you need is mm. one person who's willing mm. to take the reins as a leader. And so it started as a racial, we called it the Racial Reconciliation Reading Group. It's now the Racial Justice Reading Group. And that group has met since um, the fall of 2016. And we've read 10 or so books together at, uh, at this time, dealing or mainly written by African-American authors, but all about race um, in the United States. And as a result of that, that's the group I turned to to say, okay, we're facing this dilemma. The anniversary, 100th anniversary of the Cornerstone is coming up. And how do we use this opportunity to give thanks and tell our story? And so that group discerned that we would buy the banner together, which hung outside for more than a year, that said, we repent from our roots in white supremacy, building a foundation of truth and reconciliation. Um, we actually hung that on the exact 100 year anniversary of the oh, laying of the cornerstone. And so in worship that day, we told the whole story. Uh, I think about John Hope Franklin, the great historian who was at Duke many years, who says we have to tell our unvarnished truth. Yes. It's one of the quotes that you see if you walk into the Museum of African American History and Culture. We have mm. to tell our unvarnished truth. Mm. And so we tried our best to faithfully tell our unvarnished truth as the people who call Mount Vernon Place United Methodist Church their home. Did anyone object? Did yeah. anyone come so, and say, this is too much, or? Um, I have a couple of older members who have been part of the church for many decades, who have said things to me like, I'm not sure I would have handled it that way. Mm. And so they haven't been nasty or objected with a great deal of opinion, but they have let me know their opinion through words like that. I'm mm. not sure I would have handled it that way. Mm. We have also lost- Obviously they didn't during their time period. Right. It wasn't right. handled that way, which left wounds unhealed. Sure. And, but, and a words truth unspoken. Exactly. Uh, the full truth was, wasn't told. And this has been one of my protestations over, in my world, evangelical publishing, for example, that always wants, seems to at least, want to tell 
always the better part of a story. Right, of course. But not the worst or the less appealing part of the story. I don't think it's just evangelical. I think it's human mm. nature, right? Mm. I mean, look at what we put on social media. We don't tell our whole truth on social media. Sure. We don't post our ugly pictures of ourselves or our less sure. than pleasing pictures of our family. We post pictures of beautiful children, and we tell people about record crowds in our congregation. We don't post what a you know awful day. So what about the person who says, "But pastor, you know, this is demoralizing. It's negative. What what really good can come of it? Have you seen good come from it?" Oh my goodness! So much good has come from it, and so the banner alone has brought new people in. The Washington Post did an article on the day that we did our service of repentance, and someone has come to our church as a result of that article. It's been featured on many Instagram posts or Facebook posts with words along the lines of, this church really gets it. It's also been vandalized multiple times. I see. The banner, not the building, thanks be, but the banner's also been vandalized. And how was it vandalized, do you care to say? Sure, someone put up um, their own version of Ten Commandments that deal with race, and they're referenced in the article, in the Sojourner's article, so they're referenced right. there. Uh, with greater clarity than I can offer you now. Because okay. someone had a copy, Kimberly had a copy of them when she wrote the uh, article. But things about how white supremacy is a lie or white privilege is a lie. And there are countless people, Rob, you know that, who are never going to understand white sure. privilege, let alone be able or to say... Or do not wish to. True. Simply do yes. not wish to. And, and for, for any number of reasons. And yet it seems to me terribly contradictory to our own faith because at least you know in one form or another I think across the board Christians would agree that that our faith commitment begins with our own confession of our own sinfulness right and our need of a savior for that reason right so why wouldn't we publicly name our right. sins and not even confession but even generosity and stewardship that we're stewards of everything that we've been given, that nothing that we have, our mind, our particular talents, our gifts, our expertise, they're all gifts. And I think about when it comes to privilege, no matter what privilege we have, we need to be able to name that privilege for what it is and to put it in its proper place. Mm. Mm. Period. Even privilege needs boundaries, has Very boundaries. Very much so, and, uh, and wise understanding. So privilege can be used for some good. Of course. But when it bleeds into the wrong space, it becomes toxic. Sure, or when it's used in a powerful way. Well, I only regret that we actually run out of time with this podcast. <laughs> we have, but I'm going to say, I hope everybody listening will go to the Sojourner's article We'll post a link with this podcast, so you'll find it right there, to read the story, and we'll watch with interest. And if folks want to check in with Mount Vernon Congregation and find out how is this church doing along its pilgrimage in this uh, area, as well as many others, where do they find Mount Vernon? You can find us on the corner of 9th and Massachusetts, 900 Massachusetts Avenue Northwest. Can't miss it. And online, if you're not here in Washington, the the uh, 
I should have it memorized by MVP now. MVPUMC.org. MVPUMC.org. Check in on this wonderful church with its, I'm not shy to say it, wonderful pastor. And it's very complicated, but overall wonderful history mm. that brings it to this present moment. So Donna, thank you. Thank you. For the chat. It's been very edifying. Blessings. Thank you.